0: Today's reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Hi New Hope, it's great to see you all of you. It's really good to be here with all of you to worship God together. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me before we jump into God's word. Lord, what a a good thing it is for us to be gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And we are in fact gathered in his name before you to worship you, and to hear from you. Lord, I stand here in in weakness, but I ask that you would move in power, and that by your spirit you would use your word to accomplish what only you can accomplish, to bring rescue, to bring transformation. Lord, would you do this by your strength? We don't have the strength to do it. I don't, but you do, Lord. So we entrust this, this time to you. We entrust ourselves to you. And we ask that in mercy and in grace, you would come and work salvation and transformation in us. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all of that. Amen. We're uh, continuing a sermon series called the Five Solas of the Reformation. October 31st. Some of you may have been dressed up in silly costumes or maybe some of our kids may have been dressed up in silly costumes out there getting some candy, but it also happened to be, in addition to Halloween, the 500th anniversary, of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, more specifically, uh, October 31st was the 500th anniversary of this event, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther visited a church in Wittenberg and he nailed to the front doors of that church a list of his convictions, what we've come to call the 95 Theses. He nailed them to the door of that church, and this was an act of protest by Martin Luther, protest against abuses that he had seen within the church, the Roman Catholic Church, his church. And it began what was really a genuine attempt to encourage discussion, And to encourage reform within the church. The movement that began that day was more than just a historical event. It was an event that, it was a movement that changed not only church history, but it changed history as a whole. It was a movement of the Holy Spirit by which a revolution, in a sense, took place. The five solas that we've been covering, these are five Latin phrases that represent the core principles that were at the center of the Reformation. Um, these, these, each of these five solas that we're going to look at, each one of them points to one area of disagreement between the Reformers like Martin Luther and many others and the church, the Roman church. So what we're talking about here is uh, something that happened 500 years ago in a sense, but not really. We're talking about these five solas because in 2017, right now, because they're still the core principles of this church, too, and what we believe as a body. So let's look at these five solas. Here's what they are. Sola gratia, sola fide, solas Christus, sola scriptura, and soli Deo gloria. And and what these teach us is it's salvation, each of these Latin terms. They teach us it's salvation or, or, or forgiveness and acceptance with God. Only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. Now we're taking each one of those phrases and we're unpacking them over five weeks. We're not going in that order. We actually started with sola scriptura, and then last week Dan preached on sola fide. And I'm not going to revisit those today. I was going to, but decided not to for the sake of time. Instead, if you missed those, um, you can listen to those sermons on our website or or on our podcast as well. Today we're going to unpack sola gratia, which means grace alone. So let's define our terms, first of all, okay? We know what alone means. What does grace mean? What is grace? I've often defined it this way. Actually, from right here, I've defined it this way. It's God's unearned favor for undeserving people. God's unearned favor and blessing for undeserving people. The Christian church has always believed and has always taught that humans, us, have all sinned. And and that our sin has alienated us from our creator, God. Therefore, we need to be reconciled to the God from whom we've been alienated. And the only way that's going to happen is if he forgives us and accepts us. What the reformers taught, starting 500 years ago, and really what the church actually believed long before then, as we're going to see, was a conviction that we have no hope of earning forgiveness from God. We can't prove ourselves, as sinners, we cannot prove ourselves worthy and acceptable to God. Instead, the only way that we're going to be reconciled, the only way that we can be forgiven and accepted by God is if he extends forgiveness and acceptance to us as a gift for free. That's grace. That's grace. When God extends as a gift to us unearned favor, blessing, acceptance. I love the way Romans 6.23 puts it so clearly. It says there, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Think about what that verse tells us. What have we earned with God? If you think of God as your employer, what have you earned with him through your life? The sins that you have committed have earned you death. Because of your sins and mine, that's what we deserve. It's our fair wage, in a sense. It's what we've earned. But eternal life, acceptance with God, we can't earn that. It can only come to us as a gift. And again, that is grace. That is grace. Now, I think that uh, we are, I know I am, and I suspect that many of you as well, are prone to either misunderstand what grace means or, in a sense, to to take it for granted. Many of us, even if we have a, a clear theological definition for what grace is, we can very easily take it for granted, undervalue it, cheapen it, That's a sad truth. And so one of the reasons we're talking about grace today is because I want us as a church, and I know you desire this too, to not undervalue the gift of salvation that God has given us. I don't want us to to cheapen it and underestimate the power of God's grace. In fact, to, to help us understand grace more clearly, someone once said, grace isn't just God's unearned favor for undeserving people. It's actually God's unearned favor for ill-deserving people. Not undeserving, ill-deserving. It's a subtle difference, right? What's the difference? Undeserving means we don't deserve God's grace. Ill-deserving means we actually deserve the opposite of God's grace. We have actively made ourselves worthy of the opposite. Let me give you a little example, a little story. I hope you don't find it too silly, but hopefully it'll tease this truth out a little bit. Let's say you, um, you hire a contractor friend of yours to do some minor uh, remodeling work on your house. And this contractor friend of yours, uh, you and he uh, or she arrive at uh, uh, an agreement, you put some money down, you sign a contract, and the agreement is that you're gonna go away for a little while, you're gonna be away for several months on a trip. When you come back, this work is going to be done and you will finalize the payment. You'll make the final payment in addition to the down payment once you get back. So, Papers are signed. The agreement is reached. You go away. You come back a couple of months later to find that no work has been done. That your house is exactly the way it was when you left. And so you reach out to your contractor friend. Your contractor friend explains, makes some excuses, but basically at the end of the day says, no, I haven't done the work. Now you, sitting across the table from your friend, say, you know what? That deposit that I gave you, hold on to that. You keep that. You keep that. Don't worry. I'll get the work done. I know you don't, you're not able to do it right now. You don't have the time. I'll get it done, but you can hold on to that deposit. That would be very gracious of you, wouldn't it? Especially if that deposit was in the thousands and thousands of dollars. Kind of absurdly gracious, wouldn't it be? Now, it would be even a little bit more gracious if you were to say, you know what? I'll pay you for the rest of the work even though you haven't done it. I'll give you the check. Even though you haven't done anything that you agreed to do, that would be even more gracious. Now, let's say, when you came back three months, let's reverse the beginning of that story. The agreement is reached, you go away on vacation or for that trip, and you come back, and not only has no work been done, but when you walk into their house, you find that you have been robbed. That your house is a wreck. Your house is destroyed. It's unlivable. And so you reach out to your contractor a friend to find out what in the world happened here, and you can't get a hold of your contractor friend. He's not answering your calls. And so you keep calling, and he's not answering. You have to chase this person down. Finally, you find him, and you chase him down, and you say, what is going on? And all he's got for you is excuses. Not even an apology, but just excuses. And what if you were to say to that contractor friend, you know what, that deposit I handed you, hold on to that, don't worry. In fact, the rest of the money I owe you for the work that you have done, here it is, take it. You've destroyed my house. You've ruined my home. Here's the money. I will cover the cost of having this work done on my own. You don't have to worry about it. I'm gonna take care of it. And in fact, in fact, once all the work is done, this house is yours. Take it. You live here, you raise your family here. Enjoy it as a gift from me. Unearned, undeserved, ill-deserved. Now now that, we're, trying, we're starting to get a, just a little bit, little bit closer to what God's grace looks like. But even there, we haven't even started to scratch the surface of the immense lavishness of the grace that God has shown us in the face of our constant, not only disappointing him, but of our constant rejection of him, excuses, running away from him, not returning the calls, lying, covering up our lies, offending him, ruining what he's given us, And he gives us grace. That gets a little bit closer to what the grace of God looks like. Uh, An old friend of mine and my former pastor used to call it scandalous grace. I kind of like that word. It's scandalous because it's so extravagant that it's ridiculous, it's over the top, it's it's, it's absurd grace. Think Think about it from this angle. Consider the times that we are living in now, New Hope. Recently, the curtain, I believe, is, is being drawn back on some of our nation's secret and, and not so secret sins. In lots of ways. One way that I've seen, just as I followed it online and I've talked to some sisters myself, including my own wife, These long-hidden stories of of sexual assault and and sexual misconduct are are finally being told. Maybe you've seen these stories, you've heard these stories, maybe some of these stories are yours. And and the wickedness of each one of these stories, it just keeps piling up and piling up and piling up before us. And and it's just compounded by the efforts that that, that people have made to, to excuse away those assaults and excuse away the sexual sin justify it, defending abusers, even making them our leaders. Our, our, our idols and our prejudices are being revealed even as we defend some of those sick acts. And if you've been following the news, you know that some careers are toppling as a result of this. Lives are being ruined. Misconduct and, 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 and an assaults committed years ago are now coming home to roost. And I can't even imagine the pain and the shame that some of those victims have lived with with those untold stories for, for years and in some cases for, for decades. I believe that we are being forced in a sense to come to terms with all that idolatry and all that wickedness as a society. Like we can't look away from it. It's just right in front of us. And it's not just Hollywood. It's it's every industry, I've heard stories of it, even in the church. And I know watching this as a man, I'm, I'm, I'm confused by it. I'm amazed. And it's caused me to look back at my own past and think about the sins that I have committed. And, and just as an aside, just to, to, to men here, to you, my brothers and, and men who are visiting here, um, I think a question worth asking is, how have we in any way contributed to this wickedness? And before we're quick to say, well, you know, I've never assaulted anyone sexually. I've never harassed anyone. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have. I don't know. But think about this. If you have in the past or even right now used pornography... You are a contributor to a culture of sexual assault. You're part of a culture that says, I can use somebody's body without them allowing me to. I can use someone to gratify myself. Someone made in the image of God. I can use them regardless of how they feel about it. If that's you, you're part of the problem. The the curtain is being drawn. I'm just pointing out that one area of sexual sin and all that stuff that's coming out in the news because we can't get away from it. But that's just one area in which the curtain is being drawn back on our society's sin. And in all of these areas, and there are many of them, racism and greed and, and partisanship and murder, our national depravity is increasingly on display. For us to see... And for the world to see. It, it's as if we're being disrobed and we're standing before a mirror and, and we're ashamed at what we see, the wretchedness that we see in front of us. And, and it gets to a point where I feel like I can't even look anymore. I don't want to see the next headline. I don't want to see somebody's name trending because I'm assuming, oh my goodness, they've, they've, they've committed some wicked assault and act against someone as well. Consider this now. Every day, every day, our holy God sees all of it. From the beginning of time until now, he has seen all of it. All the depravity that shocks us when we see it, he's been looking upon it from the very beginning. And so much more. It lies uncovered before his eyes. It's lived out brazenly before him. Psalm 94, 6 says, They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless, and they say, The Lord does not see. Doesn't that speak in some sense of our society? The Lord doesn't see. We assault the less powerful. We lie to cover our sins up. We justify our weak, weak wickedness. We kill the most vulnerable members of our society. We take what's not ours. We ignore the needs of others. And we say the Lord does not see. But he does see, of course. He looks at a world that he made good and he sees what we have done to it. He watches as as all of us have gone astray, each of us gone to his own way. My point is simply this. None of us is blameless. Far from it. We are, each of us, part of the problem. We are sinners. And as he looks, God, the holy God, his wrath is stored up. So listen, if, you are, if you're outraged by the stories of abuse and injustice and, and perversion that, that, that you've been hearing lately, or even if you're outraged by the, 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 the experiences that you have suffered the pain and the offenses and the the, the victimization that you have suffered, know this, that our holy God is incensed. Our holy God is not mocked. Now, if you want to understand, if we want to understand the depth of God's grace, we need to see grace in the context of all that. Grace is the free and generous gift of forgiveness in the face of all that ugliness. God does not give out grace naively. He sees all the wickedness, and yet he says forgiveness, acceptance. And not only that, but how does he do it? Look at what Isaiah 53 tells us. It says that all we like sheep have gone astray. The story of mankind, the story of humanity from the start. We have turned everyone to his own way. And like I said, God looks upon it and he sees it all. What does he do? It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's the him here? The him is Jesus. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That is the grace of God. In in fact, we could say that the grace of God, it's not just a vague concept. The grace of God has a name. The name is Jesus. Jesus the walking embodiment of God's grace who says, I will willingly take the blame and the wrath for all who will have me, for all who will, who will admit their depravity and their wickedness and come to me and be rescued. Do, do you see that? It, it's the free gift of God in Christ. Christ. In the death of the beloved, beautiful, perfect son of God, the gift is handed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we, we might become the righteousness of God. The grace of God is such that Jesus takes on the guilt and the shame of the sexual assailant, of the pervert, of the pedophile, and of those who remain silent in the face of all of that stuff. He takes it on himself with countless, countless other numbers of sins so that we could take his blessedness, his righteousness, Christ taking on the guilt and shame that's ours, that belongs to the worst of us, so that he can give us all the blessings that he deserves. Grace is free to us. There is no doubt. We just got through going through five months of Galatians. Hopefully we realize grace is free to us, but it is not cheap. It is not without cost. It cost God everything. We receive it freely, simply by believing, by faith, as we heard last week. But it costs so much. And like I said, God does not give us this gift and He knows the worst about us. He knows the worst about you. He knows the secrets that you will never tell one person until the day you die. And yet he's still willing to cleanse and to forgive all who come to him through Christ. And his grace is enough for the worst of us. His grace is enough for the worst of us. Maybe, there are, maybe you sit here as a Christian and there are particular sins that you committed even today that are just burdening you. Maybe they're awful. Maybe if you shared them with the rest of us, we'd be shocked. Or maybe if you shared it with the rest of us, we'd be like, ah, no big deal. But to you it's a big deal. And to God it's a big deal. I got in the car with my van this, in the van with my son this morning and I yelled at the top of my lungs at him because he forgot something and made me late and I had to go back home. And as I'm sitting there in the back singing songs to this glorious God who has extended grace to me, I'm thinking, what kind of man am I? That's a sin that's burdening me this, this afternoon. What's burdening you? I'm sorry son. The grace of God is sufficient for the worst of us, at our very worst. God comes to us with his eyes wide open, sees everything that we've done, and extends grace. Let's look at Ephesians 2, eight through 10. It says there, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What I'd like to do with the rest of the time today, the next 15 minutes, just like us to To think about grace as it's presented to us in these verses. I'd like us to see three things here. Three things that that grace works in us and drives us towards. All right, Grace drives us towards. It gives us security, humility, and repentance. Those are three takeaways I want us to take from this passage. Security, humility, and repentance. And the reason I want us to look at this is because as we look at it, hopefully the Lord will use it... To give us a deeper sense of just how glorious and amazing God's grace is. And hopefully we'll walk out of here undervaluing it a little less. Cheapening it a little less. This verse tells us that we have been saved by grace. The, the, the save, it means rescued, right? You know what saved means. It means rescued. What have we been rescued from? We've been rescued from alienation from God. Not only that, we've been saved by the, from the wrath of God. Romans tells us that God, when he saves us, he's actually saving us from himself. From the wrath that we deserve from him. He's saving us from lostness. Saving us from judgment. And how does this gift become ours? It says here in, Galatia, in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. We heard about this last week. We, we received this gift through faith. And yet, that faith is nothing that we're doing to earn the grace. In fact, the faith itself is a gift from God. He gives us the faith. He opens up our eyes to even see how much we need His grace to begin with. Now, all we do is come to Him like a child. The scriptures talk about, Jesus talks about uh, uh, coming to receiving the kingdom of God like like a child, or coming to Him like a child, right? Maybe you've thought about what does it mean to have faith like a child? That's all it requires to, to receive salvation. What does it mean? I've, I've heard it described this way. Sometimes, like, you know, as a faith, like a child means, you know, don't ask any questions. Just kind of shut up and receive the gift, you know? Don't ask questions. Be kind of like children could be gullible sometimes. Sometimes they're much more perceptive than, than we are, that I am. But the stereotype sometimes that kids are gullible. I know you guys aren't very gullible at all. But I don't think that's what this is talking about at all. Faith like a child doesn't mean that at all. I don't think so. I think faith like a child means something altogether different. When you think about it this way, when you give a gift, Christmas is coming up, right? We're going to give gifts to our children, some of us. When we give gifts to our children, do you expect your child to look back at you and say, "Um, where's the receipt? How much do I owe you for this? What do I need to do to pay you back for this? I don't expect that, right? What do you expect the child to do? Take it, rip it open. If you're lucky, you'll say thank you, right? They're not going to offer to pay you back for it. Probably not. I believe this is something of what it looks like to come to Christ with the faith of a child. It means to come and receive grace and not be all about, what can I, pay? What can I give you? How can I pay you back for this? How can I make good for this? How can I earn this from you? Instead, we take it. We express gratitude. We enjoy it as a gift. And I said that this, one of the things that grace works in us is it it gives us a sense of, when we we really come to understand or, or at least better grasp the grace of God, it will fill us with a deep sense of security. Security. Here's why. Because if you didn't earn your acceptance with God, if you didn't work for it, if you didn't do it, then you can't undo it. If you didn't work for it, then you can't lose it. That's the beauty of grace. What he has given, he will never take back. The lavishness of it. If you read the beginning of of Ephesians 2, before these these verses that we read, you read there about the lavishness and the the beauty of the, the absurdly huge amount of grace that God has poured out upon. He says, we've been risen with Christ. We've been seated with Christ. That's all a done deal. If you have come to Jesus in faith and it's a done deal, for, you, for, your, for that grace to be revoked, Jesus himself would have to be unseated, unrisen. Can't happen. It's yours. You see the security and the comfort in that, that I can live day to day knowing that nothing can change My acceptance with him. If it were within our power to lose what God has given us, we would have lost it already, wouldn't we? Like I said, he knows the worst about you. He will not take back his gift. John 10, 28 puts it this way. Here's how Jesus speaks to us about the security of the grace that we've been given. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will. Will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. One of the things I love about this verse is that it's, 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 Jesus is telling us look, the, the gift of eternal life that you've received from God, no one can take that away from you. It's a gift, no one's going to take it away. But he also says in here, he says, "My Father, who has given them to me, we are. We, it's as if we were, as the church, as God saved people. We are a gift to Jesus. God the Father has given us to Jesus, and God's not taking us back away from Jesus. No one, in fact, can take us away. This gift that the Father has given to the Son, no one's taken it away. Security, security. Second thing, humility, humility." It says in Ephesians 2, 9, it's not your salvation, it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't boast, I can't either. Why? Because we are his workmanship, it says, verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Now that's meant to humble us, isn't it? There's no room for for pride or boasting here. Think about this. It took the power of God to save you. It took all of his lavish grace to rescue you. That's humbling. That means that you were in a very, very bad state and very hopeless, very powerless. Grace is for for losers. It's for the powerless. When we embrace that, find humility along with that security. The standards by which we measure each other, by which we compare ourselves to one another, they don't hold water with God. God looks at us and sees us on a level playing field, all of us sinners. And again, that's meant to humble us. We sometimes compare ourselves to one another and think, okay, I was saved by grace, you were saved by grace, but it probably took more grace to save you than than me. Like, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but I think you've fallen a little bit shorter than I have. We compare ourselves to each other. It's bogus. First of all, that makes no sense. Second of all, if we're comparing ourselves to each other, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong person. We should be comparing ourselves to the perfect standard of God's holy law as embodied in Jesus Christ. Compare yourself to him. Now you don't look so good, right? It's like if I were to go to basketball tonight and, uh, and, and wheel my son Marcos, who's in a wheelchair because he broke his leg out there on the court, put him up under, the, under those, one of those, uh, those low hoops, Let him sit there and then dribble up the ball and jump over him and dunk over him. And say, see son, that's how you play ball. (laughs) And I would have boast to you about it. Did you see how I schooled my son with a broken leg who's seven years old on a small hoop? Did you see that? See how ridiculous that boast is? Take me out there with LeBron James or or, or Dan Sin, our own LeBron James, take me out there with Dan Sin. (laughs) And he'll teach me a lesson. He'll show me how foolish my boasting is. He'll show me that I'm I'm judging myself based on the wrong standard. If you are in Christ, then you are a sinner saved by grace and in constant need of grace. Full stop. There's no buts after that. And that's humbling. That's humbling. It says here that we are the workmanship of God, his workmanship in Christ Jesus. Think about what that means. It means that that anything that's good in us, it's because God has made it good in us, He's shaped us. If we're any better than we were five years ago, ten years ago, whatever, if you're a Christian today and you look at yourself and say, I'm a better person than I was before I came to Christ. I hope you are a better person than when you came to Christ. But whatever good you see there, that's God's workmanship. That's not you. That's what he's done. And when you talk about workmanship, when you look at something, if I look at a beautiful piece of furniture, what do I, and who gets the praise for that? The person who made it, right? If I look at a beautiful painting, who gets the praise for that? The artist. So that if you look at any beauty in you, and there's so much beauty in you, but as you see it, who gets the glory for it? Your savior and creator does. Third thing, repentance. A deeper understanding of grace will move us towards security, humility, and lastly, repentance. It says here in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, This word in here, good works, right? We use the word good works pretty often in church. It's like kind of, it may sound kind of like Christianese, right? What are good works? What does that mean? Um, We read in the Bible about good works and we read about dead works. I think it's helpful to think of it this way. Works, when the Bible talks about works, it's talking about things that you do for God or in the name of God. Things that you are doing for God and in the name of God. Dead works, Hebrews 6 and I believe Hebrews 9 talks about dead works. Those are works that you're doing for God and in the name of God, but you're doing them to earn something from God. Maybe it's generosity, philanthropy. It could be anything, really. That you're doing, and it's good, and you're doing it for God, and you may even be doing it in God's name, but it's dead. because you're do- It's dead, it's useless, it's pointless work, at least from God's perspective, because you're doing it to impress him, to earn his favor, etc. And he can't do any of those things. Good works, on the other hand, are something altogether different. Good works are those works that are done for God, in the name of God, out of a heart of response to the grace that God has given you. It's, it's, a, it's a worship towards him. It's, it's gratitude towards him. It's a desire to serve him, to love him and love your neighbors, not to make a name for yourself, not to earn anything for yourself. Those are the good works that's talked about here in Ephesians 2. They are, they are works that stem from faith. They're not perfect works, not at all. And they don't earn anything from God, but they do please God. He looks at them and, they, and he's happy with them. They don't earn your salvation, but they, they certainly, as he looks upon them, he he says, that's good. That's good. Augustine, who was another, another priest who lived many, many centuries before Martin Luther. This was uh, over a thousand years before the Reformation even started. And I mentioned this, well, I mention this for two reasons. Augustine of Hippo, he was, a, he was an African uh, uh, Catholic priest in... in uh, in, in the, the 400's I mention him because I want you to see that this notion of salvation by grace through faith is something that existed way before the reformation ever come around and it's something that existed not only in Europe where the reformation was a European uh, uh, centered uh, movement of the Holy Spirit Augustine was from Africa he's, a, he's an African brother not, he's not German And Augustine said these words. He said, for grace is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. You see that? Grace is given not because we've done good things, but in order that we may be able to do them. It's the grace that enables us to do good things. He goes on to say grace alone brings about every good work in us. If it's truly a good work, if it's truly good, then it's going to be brought about by the grace of God In you stimulating you empowering you moving you to obey God out of a sense of gratitude and also out of a sense of identity obeying God you see the difference there's so much of a difference between obeying God out of a sense of I need to earn something or if I don't he's gonna condemn me he's gonna put the hammer down on me that's very different from me obeying out of a sense of of gratitude but also obeying out of a sense of identity obeying out of this saying I'm his workmanship I was made for good works. That's the reason He designed me the way I am. It's the reason He recreated me in Christ. Of course, I'm going to do good works. It's what I'm made for, it's my identity in Him. His workmanship. And part of what it means to do good works is to repent from evil works and dead works, it's it's turning away from what's not good turning away from dead works to try to earn God's favor, and turning towards good works that are a response to God and obedience out of identity and out of gratitude. See what I'm saying? Titus 2 puts it this way. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. I'll stop there. It says here that grace, when it comes into our lives, when we come into contact with grace, it trains us. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't just rescue us. It trains us. Whenever I read that, for some reason, maybe it's because I'm old, I think of Rocky, and I think of that old man Mickey, his trainer. And I think about how Mickey like, trained Rocky, you know, to fight. The grace of God trains us hard, sits in the corner with us, teaches us, transforms us inwardly so that we can, in the, ver- in the words of uh, Titus 2, renounce. Think about renounce. It's similar to repent, similar word. It means to turn away from, to reject ungodliness and worldly passions and to live instead this way, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Grace rescues us, and it changes us. And one way that that change is walked out is through repenting. Repenting of our dead works to try to earn favor from God, but also repenting from all that lawlessness and all that worldly passions and ungodliness, as Paul says in Titus. You know, that, those, um, those 95 theses that, that, that um, Martin Luther, I almost said stapled, that he nailed to the doors at uh. At Wittenberg. The very first of those theses read this way it said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers would be repentance. Think about that. The entire life of believers is a life of repentance. What does that mean? It means we're constantly turning away. Like we're turning away from things that we want to worship as God and turning towards God. We're turning away from our schemes to try to earn favor from God and turning to God. We're turning away from worldliness and all those other um, sinful acts and we're turning to God. Again and again we're reorienting ourselves. The Christian life is reorienting ourselves once again and again and again towards Jesus and the grace that's available to us in him. Ephesians 2 says that God has prepared good works for us to walk in. Those words blow me away. Think about it this way. As you seek to just follow Jesus, you're just seeking to follow him, obey him, know him better, get closer, experience more intimacy with him. And as you do that, you're you're rejecting sin, right? So you're rejecting idols. Maybe you're you're resisting the temptations to to lust or to gossip or you're resisting the temptation to to flip out on people. Think about the fact that in those moments as you're doing all that, you are walking in the good works that he has prepared for you. Do you approach life that way? Every humble act of service that you do for someone else's good, every act of generosity and love that you show towards someone else, that opportunity came from your Savior. That opportunity came from God who prepared that work and prepared that opportunity beforehand so that you could walk in it. And he's watching, and he's enabling you as you walk in it. Those opportunities were designed for you. So here's what I want us to walk away with. A a deeper sense of the beauty of God's grace and the depth of his grace for us and the power of it so that we will be moved towards a deeper sense of security, humility, and repentance. Let's not underestimate, let's not undervalue God's grace. Remember, it took the immeasurable riches of God's grace to rescue you. Let's, Let's not cheapen that. We cheapen that often, guys. We cheapen it. When we reject the security that it offers us and the humility and the repentance, when we reject all that, we're cheapening God's grace. When I start to feel like I am not good enough, when you start to feel like I, when you start to feel like, as as a Christian who is trusted in Christ, you start to feel like, I might not have done enough. I need to do more in order for God to truly love me. And you start to live with that insecure feeling that that you haven't been good enough, that God can't love you right now based on what Christ has done. It can't be enough. What are you doing? You're rejecting that security and you're cheapening God's grace. Or, Or on the other hand, if you start to think that you are in and of yourself good enough, to be accepted by God. Maybe you're rejecting the grace altogether. You're saying, I don't need God's grace. I'm, I'm, I'm clean. I'm, I'm fine as it is. I'm much better than anyone else. I've never committed sexual assault. I've never done this. My reputation is pretty good. You're rejecting God's grace and you're rejecting the humility that comes with it. And in pride, you're saying, I don't need it. Some of us, some of us cheapen God's grace by thinking that we can receive it and then live however we'd like. We feel like because God has given us this gift of acceptance and forgiveness, it doesn't matter how he's called us to live. His commandments are of no importance. So we reject his word and we think that we can live as we see fit. Once again, we're cheapening the grace of God. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been freed to walk in security and in humility and repentance. You don't need to worry if you've done enough. You've been free to walk in humility. You've been free to turn away from sin and turn away from idols and keep turning back to God. So As we come to this table in just a moment to eat this bread and take this cup, let's come with a deep sense of security and what God has done for us that's represented in this table. The sufficiency and finality of it. And let's come with humility. Knowing that we need grace even now. And let's come repenting. Let's come to this table turning away from whatever sins are burdening you right now. Whatever sins are entangling you right now. Turning away from them as an act of repentance even as you come to this table. Let's pray. Lord, your grace towards us is too amazing to be captured in words. Your your, your Bible speaks again and again of it. And yet we know that that we'll never really get our heads wrapped around it. But Father, we pray that nevertheless you would drive us to feel a deep sense of just how much you love us in Christ. And just how safe and secure we are in him. And would that move us, Lord, not, not, not to shame, but to humility. Would it drive us to go towards you and away from anything that would keep us from you? Lord, enlighten the eyes of our souls so that we will know the power of your grace more and more and more deeply. And for those who have never experienced your grace, Lord, would you have mercy? Would you open the eyes of their souls so they for the first time would see who you are? See themselves for who they really are and come to you and find all the grace they need. Amen.